Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 15. I'm going to talk in this audio, discuss in this audio, verses 14 through 21. Our context is this. In the first 13 verses of Romans 15, Paul has continued with his exhortation to maintain unity between Jews and Greek, between the strong and the weak Christians, the Jews being generally the weak Christians because they would have scruples about keeping the law, whereas the Gentiles were free from the law. And then after he does that, he starts talking about how the Gentiles were saved because of their Jewish because of the Jewish patriarchs and the Jewish promises to the patriarchs, and therefore the Gentiles have got no reason to be cocky about their salvation. And also, the Jews have got no reason to be to look down on the Gentiles, because after all, the purpose of God's gospel was to minister the word to Gentiles also, and Paul proved that by quoting a lot of Old Testament verses that referred to the nations, to the Gentiles. So now we start in verse 14. He's going to continue... My brothers, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, this is the beginning of the end of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It's very personal in nature, according to the commentator Hendrickson. Hendrickson says that Paul is a man of tact, humility, passion, and concern for the feelings of others. Now, he's being very nice here in verse 14. You're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. Why is he being so nice? Why is he showing so much tact? Well, he might have been particularly addressing the Gentiles in the church at Rome because he came down on them pretty hard, trying to look out for those weak brethren. Quit looking down on the Jews because they don't eat, eat pork and other thing, other doubtful things that they that their conscience is weak about uh, doing. So he came down pretty hard on the Gentiles, and so he's now trying to smooth it over a little bit by saying, "Look, I know I've given you, I've told you a lot of stuff that might sound kind of harsh, but it's okay because I'm convinced that you're full of goodness. You're good people, Romans. You can handle it. You're full of knowledge. You know what's right, and you can instruct one another. You don't really need me to do it." Paul assumed the church at Rome was basically healthy, as opposed to the church at Corinth, for example, which was not basically healthy. Paul had never met the church at Rome, so he assumed the best of them. That's probably a good idea for us today. He assumed the best if you don't know if, if there are any troubles in the church. Here's what the Romans might have thought about Paul's previous writings in the book of Romans. This is a quote from John Gill. What does the apostle mean by all this? What does he think of us or take us to be? Men that live in malice to one another, devoid of all humanity and mutual respect? A parcel of fools and ignorant men that know nothing of divine things? Well... Depends on how sensitive they were, but they could have fought that. And so Paul's trying to smooth it over. Romans 15, verses 15 through 16. Paul continues. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of God's good news. My purpose is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When he says, nevertheless, what does he mean? Well, nevertheless, even though that you are so full of wisdom and knowledge, nevertheless, I've got to remind you of a couple of points. He's very tactful about it, but he, he does need to remind them of a few things they already know, but they're really not practicing. I've written to remind you more boldly on some points. Now, he was pretty bold to write, his, to write so frankly to a church he didn't know, but he felt he was free to do it, to do that because he was an apostle to the Gentiles. The Romans were Gentiles mainly, a lot. And so he says, I'm going to just tell you what I think you ought to be doing over here, Rome. 
Romans, even though I didn't start you and I haven't met you yet. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that the church was probably predominantly Gentile, but in Romans 11:13, Paul says, And I am speaking to you Gentiles, and he mentions that he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And so because he's, he's so freely talking to the church at Rome, so frankly talking to them, that shows that they're probably Gentiles, and he feels that he can talk to Gentiles because he's had a track record of ministering to Gentiles. Now, Paul says, I've written to remind you. This is an interesting idea. Peter has the same idea in Second Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I consider it right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. And I will also make every effort that you may be able to recall those things at any time after my departure. So you remind people so they remember them later. There's nothing wrong with being reminded about what one already knows. How many times have you started studying a parcel, a, a portion of scripture that you've studied a thousand times and all of a sudden you forgot all the stuff that's in there? And The human brain cannot maintain everything constantly. You have to be reminded. Now, there is an extreme on this. Sometimes people remind you and remind you and remind you, and pretty soon you get bored of it and you don't want to hear it anymore. I mean, you, you, you've got, got to balance that out. You need new stuff as well as old stuff. Now, Paul says here, my purpose is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. He's using an, a metaphor from the book of Leviticus. As the priest in Leviticus offered up an animal on the altar as a sacrifice to God, serving God that way. Paul is a priest, but he's different than Levitical priests because Levitical priests served God in the temple, whereas Paul served God by preaching to the Gentiles. So his offering to God was the Gentiles, his or his preaching to the Gentiles. His offering was the Gentile church, as the NIV Study Bible says, acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the Gentile church is acceptable to God and made holy, sanctified, that's what sanctified means, to be made holy, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's got a high view of these guys. They're full of wisdom. They're full of knowledge. They're able to instruct each other. They're sanctified. They're holy, made holy, made sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We go to verse 17 in, verse, in chapter 15 of Romans. Therefore I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. What does the therefore refer to? Because Paul had done his priestly duty and offered up the Gentiles as an offering, which he says in verse 16, because he's offered up those Gentiles, therefore he can boast in Christ Jesus. Notice his boasting is not in himself, but is in Christ Jesus. That's what he always does. He can say, look what Jesus has done. Look what I have done through Jesus. Jesus is who did it. I was the agent, but Jesus is the principal, if you will. And notice he's not boasting about personal things that he's done for himself. He's boasting about what pertains to God, not what pertains to Paul's earthly self. Paul wrote to the Corinthians first in 1 Corinthians 1.31, So that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if you're going to be bragging about something, brag about what Jesus has done. And there's nothing wrong with that because that gives glory to Jesus. Now, Paul actually told the Corinthians he had to start bragging about his ministry, if you will, and he says it just killed him to do it. But he had to do it because these false apostles were slandering him in Corinth. And so I think he says, I'm talking like a madman here. I'm boasting so much. He didn't like to do it, but sometimes you have to do it. So if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. 
that means it's all right to boast in the Lord. If you if you talk about what God has done through you, it's called giving a testimony to encourage other people. That's not being arrogant. I used to think that. I used to say, oh, we should never talk about what God's done in our life because it just sounds so arrogant, so proud. No, it's all right to do that as long as you make it very clear that it's not your natural gifts that's doing it. It's Jesus that's doing it. We go to verses 18 and 19. Paul continues, For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now, Paul starts out in verse 18. He says, I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He's continuing his desire not to boast except in things pertaining to God. He says, I'm not going to say anything about what I've done except what Christ has accomplished through me. Now, he does admit that God, that God used him. He was the agent. God accomplished it through him. But it was Christ that was doing the work. What work was Jesus doing to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed? Now, that deed is a little bit confusing here. You might think it's to make the Gentiles obedient in what the Gentiles say, their words, and what they do, their deeds. But what it means is what Christ, he's boasting about what Christ has accomplished through him to make the Gentiles obedient by the words that Paul has done and by the deeds that Paul has done. To make the Gentiles obedient by Paul's word and deed, in other words. What kind of deeds? Well, could be miracles that Paul did. Clark says so. Probably it refers to miracles. Barnes says that it could be miracles that Paul has done. What other deeds? Well, evangelizing, as Barnes says, exemplifying the gospel in Paul's life, sending an example is what it means to be a Christian. All these things that God has done in order to get the message out to the Gentiles. Now, the deeds that Paul did in order to evangelize included miracles. He was a great apostle, the great apostle to the Gentiles, and yet even he needed miracles to evangelize. Today's cessationists don't need miracles to evangelize. They can do it without that. Now go figure that. Here's some examples of how the miraculous was integrally involved with Paul's ministry. Acts 14, 8-10. In Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he jumped up and started to walk around. Acts 16, verses 16-18. through 18. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated, and turning to the Spirit, said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. So there's another miracle, a demon exorcism. Acts 16, verses 25 through 26. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. That's in the Philippians jail, a miraculous earthquake. Acts 20, verses 9 through 12. And a young man named Eutychus, I won't read this, Eutychus fell out the window listening to Paul talk a long time because of the smoky air. They went out and they raised him up. Either raised him from the dead or raised him up from a serious injury. Acts 28, 8 
through nine. This is on the third journey, after the third journey on the way to Rome. After the shipwreck, Paul is on the island of Malta. Publius's father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of an apostle were performed with great endurance among you, not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So Paul, when he was in Corinth, he did signs and wonders, signs and miracles, wonders and miracles. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. So you see, the miraculous was everywhere in the early church witness. I wish it were so today. Now Paul says here, he has fully proclaimed the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. We'll talk about Illyricum in a minute, but what does this mean? Does this mean that every single person between Jerusalem and Illyricum, Illyricum, by the way, is north of Epirus, which was north of Greece on the western side of Greece, on, on the eastern side of the Adriatic Sea. If you go west and cross the Adriatic Sea, you're going to end up in Italy. It contains present-day Croatia, Slovenia, Croatia, Dalmatia, Herz Bosnia, Herzegovina, those places right north of Albania, which is ancient Epirus. So does this mean that everybody all the way from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum was saved? No. Fully proclaimed means he's done his job. He's established a beachhead. He's established churches, and he expects those churches to go out and evangelize further. He can't. He didn't have mass evangelism back then. He didn't have media. He just established a little house church and went on. And then the gospel spread like leaven going through the lump of, of bread. Now, Paul says he has proclaimed the good news from Jerusalem all the, around, all the way around to Illyricum. That doesn't mean he went into Illyricum. There's no record anywhere of Acts of Paul ever going into that area. However, since Illyricum is just to the west of Macedonia, and Paul did go to Macedonia, he might have mentioned Illyricum as just the, a place close to Rome that Paul went right up to to show that he's covered most of the area to the east of Rome. Notice that the scripture says here in verse 19, I preached the gospel, proclaimed the good news all the way around to Illyricum, not in Illyricum. So that means that Paul, all probably all that it means is that Paul reached the border of Illyricum. It didn't, he didn't go into it. Here's a quote from Ellicott. Adam Barnes says that, that Paul probably, that Paul did not necessarily go into Illyricum reading the text. You can't prove that. Ellicott says the description would be sufficiently satisfied if he had approached the outskirts of Illyricum during his journey through Macedonia. However, Barnes, the com Alfred Barnes, the commentator, leaves open the possibility that Paul might have actually gone into Illyricum when he was passing through Macedonia. Remember, it was on the second journey, Paul went to Thessalonica and Berea, those two famous cities were in Macedonia and all he had to do was just take a little side trip to the west and he'd be in Illyricum. Barnes quotes this, supports this idea by quoting Paul's letter to 2 Timothy in chapter 4 verse 10, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Dalmatia is in Illyricum. So if Titus had gone to Dalmatia, and since Titus was closely associated with, associated with Paul, I guess this is the reasoning that Barnes used, uses, therefore Paul might have gone to Dalmatia too. So Paul might have gone to Illyricum. I don't know. That's highly speculative. 
I suspect Paul just went to the border of Illyricum and he was pointing that out to tell the Romans, hey, I've almost got to where you are. He starts with Jerusalem. I preach the gospel from Jerusalem because, of course, that's where Christianity started with Pentecost. We turn now to Romans 15, verse 20. Paul continues, My aim is to evangelize where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. Well, where has Christ not been named? Well, probably he's referring to Jerusalem, where Christ was named. Of course, Jesus ministered there, so now he wants to go to non-Jerusalem areas, the Gentile areas, to evangelize those Gentile areas. Paul was truly a pioneer missionary. Now, Paul says, I will not build on someone else's foundation. That's probably why Paul had not gone to Rome yet, because whoever started the church at Rome, Paul didn't want to interfere with that. Now, it's a well-known principle that Paul didn't want to build on someone else's foundation, but let me quote this first to you and see if there's a problem. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, Paul didn't seem to have any trouble here with Apollos building on his foundation, Paul says, I planted, and Apollos came into Corinth and watered what I had planted. And note that Paul was watering the Romans by writing the letter to the Romans. Somebody else has started the church, and here Paul's giving them all kinds of serious instruction. Now, here's a possible answer to that. I think that what Paul was talking about, building on another's foundation, he meant, I'm not going to go start a church in the same area where somebody else has already started a church. I think that's what he means. I don't think he means, I'm going to refrain from exhorting churches that have already been started by somebody else. I mean, everybody does that. Every church I've known has had visiting speakers come in, for example, to exhort the people. And Paul was doing that to the Romans. So, But at any rate, it is, you know, when somebody else starts a church, you kind of got to be careful with it because it's not, it's, it's not your business. You can talk to an individual, but if you start talking to how a church ought to be doing something, that's like getting involved in somebody else's family. You know how messy that is. And the smart thing to do is to stay out of somebody else's family situation. Same thing with church families. Stay out of it unless you have a chance to talk to one of the elders and say, this is what I think you ought to do, but it's up to you. It's up to your church. Consensual decision-making. The church has got to make the decision. I can't do it for you. Romans 15, verse 21. But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Here's another Old Testament Hebrew scriptures showing that the Gentiles are the object of God's love and mercy. Those who were not told about him, that would be the Gentiles, they will see. And this was written, Paul says. Where was it written? Isaiah 52, verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations, and nations, of course, is Gentiles. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. They're going to see what had not been told them. Paul quotes Isaiah. That's referring to the Gentiles. Now, Adam Clark has an interesting speculation here. He says, it's not that Isaiah has predicted what Paul had done. It's rather Paul was endeavoring to fulfill the prediction of Isaiah. In other words, Paul saw that Isaiah had predicted that. So he says, I'm going to go out and fulfill that prophecy by preaching to the Gentiles. Uh, That's a little bit subtle for me. (laughs) I don't know whether Paul... Often, I, it is an interesting question. Sometimes you wonder, did Jesus know about the Old Testament prophecies and then he went about trying to fulfill those prophecies or did he just live his life and as he lived his life, the prophecies were fulfilled? Did Paul do the same thing? Did he go around trying to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy? I don't know. But I do know this. We finish with Romans 15, verses 13 through 21. Excuse me, verses 14 through 21. In our next audio... 
we will finish Romans 15. In Romans 15, Paul will speak of his desire to go visit Rome after he deals with the poor collection, the famous poor collection he's taken up for Jerusalem. He'll talk about that poor collection. So we'll talk about that in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.